We are Gateway Chapel, where we build your world by His Word. We stand for fun, friendship, fellowship, and family. You are listening to a Gateway Chapel message. Good morning. It's so great to be with you. I do think I should take my brother, Pastor Eddie, to meet my teenage children to remind them how privileged they are to have me as their father. Anyway, I don't know about yourselves, but I find it really annoying, really unintelligent and somewhat crass when people use sermons to advertise their ministry. But I'm just feeling like you want to hear a bit more about the Evangelical Alliance. So we'll do two minutes on the EA, then we'll move on if that's okay. The Evangelical Alliance was started in 1846 with two aims. Unite the church in reaching the lost and give the church a clear and effective voice into every layer of society. 176 years on, we have the same two focuses. But people say to me, what's an evangelical? Because let's be honest, some people have destroyed the term a little. It needs redeeming, it's not redundant. But an evangelical is only four things. One, we believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. Stop changing scripture to baptize your culture and start changing your culture with the truth on the pages of the word of God. Secondly, we believe that the death and resurrection of Jesus is the single most important thing in human history. Thirdly, we believe in the need for conversion. You don't come to faith by osmosis. You get on your knees and you meet your saviour. And fourthly, we believe in being active in the world, making the world more like the kingdom. That's why evangelicals provided education before anyone else. Evangelicals in recent times, Christians Against Poverty, food banks, street pastors. That's why it will be evangelicals that do more about the upcoming cost of living crisis than anyone else does. Because we believe in making the world more like the kingdom. And the Evangelical Alliance is the oldest and largest organisation that seeks to represent the one and a half million evangelicals in this country. Let me encourage you, we're a member organisation. We've got 3,000 member churches like this one. 500 organisations and currently about 18,000 individual members coming together to want to make Jesus known. But here's the thing, we need to grow that individual number. Why? Because our access currently to the corridors of power is greater than it's ever been. During COVID, the government and others thought that they would get our help while they needed it. What they didn't realise is once we're in the room, they can't get us out again. But the voice of the church and the unity of the church is so important going forward. So my vision in, in the next decade or so is to see us get to 50,000 individual members. Why? Because then we have the same level of voice in this nation as anyone else does. And you know what? The Lord's voice needs to be louder than everyone else's, not just the same. And you know what? Um, people often say, well, what does membership mean? Well, it means we unite people in mission, but it also means you cheer us on. You give wind to our sails when we go into the corridors of power. We take bullets for the local church, let me be honest. You won't find many other people talking to the government on transgenderism on behalf of the church. Speaking into how we remain to have our freedom so you can preach what it says in the Bible in a church and that not be against the law. So you can talk about Jesus being the only way to God and that not be seen as a hate crime. You know, we are fighting on behalf of the church. There's many issues we're working on at the moment, some to do with abortion, some to do with um, sexuality, some to do with religious freedom. But it's often easier to talk about an issue we finished and say what difference it made we stood together. So four years ago, the government said they wanted to offstead all youth work and Sunday schools. Remember that? They said they wanted to do public regulation of private religion. That makes no sense. When did I move to Saudi Arabia? Anyway, we went into the corridors of power, met with um, all kinds of government ministers and said, you can't do this. On behalf of all these churches, these organisations, these members, you can't do this in this nation. This is outrageous. And at least for now, it's kicked into the long grass. 
Why? Because we stand as an alliance, not one church, many churches, many individuals, many people. We need to do that going forward. Would you stand with us? Would you continue to stand with us? So I've got a little table out the, back, out the front. I'd love you to come and see me if, you, if you're up for that. Firstly, some of you might want this. Anyone can take one of these. This is Speak Up. We've just reproduced this. We've done this with the Lawyers Christian Fellowship. We were sick of the media telling people when they could or couldn't talk about Jesus. Made no sense. You'd hear a story of a street preacher getting arrested and think you can't preach on the streets. Rubbish. You got more freedom to share the gospel in the UK legally than any country in the world. Here's the thing. Use your freedoms or your children and your children's children will lose them. So we did this with the Lawyers Christian Fellowship. Where are you free to share the gospel? And if you want one tip, do you know what gives you the most freedom to share the gospel? The more regularly you do it. If you only talk about Jesus once a year like some kind of surprise, that's proselytizing. If you talk about your Jesus regularly, that's a protected characteristic in your life. Your faith is as protected as your ethnicity, your gender, or your sexuality in UK law. So church, let's stop pretending we're not allowed to. The reason we don't share our faith is because we're chickens, not because we're not allowed to. And then, and finally, before we do move on, I wonder if I could ask you this morning, if you're already a member, thank you. Please be a member of the EA as long as you have a pulse. But if you're not a member of the Evangelical Alliance, would you consider becoming one? The individual membership is the most important. There's a growing scepticism towards institutions in the corridors of power. We need people to stand with us. It costs £3 a month to be a member. That's a cup of coffee. You can join as an individual or as a couple. If you're married, don't even check with your spouse. Just sign up as a couple. It counts as two when we see Liz Trust. But we would love you to consider standing with us. And if you do that this morning, I'm going to give you three presents. Why? I like you. Why else? Let me be honest, friends. I'm giving at least the next decade of my life to trying to unite evangelicals in sharing the gospel and for the voice of the church to be heard in every layer of society. Frankly, I'll do anything for you to stand with us. If you need a kidney, see me afterwards. Anyway, <laughs> first three presents. And if you're online, you can do this at eauk.org forward slash join us. And I promise you will get sent the same stuff. Unleashed, my wife and I wrote this. What does it look like to be the Acts Church today working in words, works and wonders? Secondly, unity for a purpose. Seven sessions for group or individual study. How can we be united? The world might know hope. Hope is the name. His name is Jesus. And finally, and if this doesn't swing it, I'm really out of ideas. It's an EA key ring. Bear with me. This on the top has our logo on. It's a fake detachable quid. In our increasingly cashless society, when you need a supermarket trolley, you'll be so grateful you join the Evangelical Alliance. When you need a locker, happy days. All I ask, friends, genuinely, each time you use yours, would you pray the three things I pray each time I use mine? I pray that the church would be united in this nation. I pray that the voice of the church would be heard effectively at every layer of society. And I pray that together we might make Jesus known. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, I pray you'd forgive me for overselling in your house. But you know how pure the motive is. Lord, I just pray this morning, I do pray your church would be united. I do pray that the voice of your church would be heard effectively at every layer of society. And I pray that together we would make you known. And as we share from your word now, Lord, I pray you'd speak to us. I pray you challenge us. Lord, we don't like to change, but this whole series is about the ways in which we need to change to be more effective for your kingdom. Lord, as we face up to that change, we thank you you're with us and you're for us, and you don't ask us to do anything you've not done first. Amen. Amen. So friends, what I want to talk to you about this morning is the kind of change needed to reach the lost in this season. 
It's how we need to reposture ourselves. Jesus is radical. How do we be more like the radical Jesus to make the most of this moment? So if you've got a Bible, would you turn it on? <laughs> to fit in, I've brought a paper one. We're going to John 20. If it's any help, it's page 933 in my Bible. But we're going to talk about the resurrected Jesus. If this doesn't get you excited, you need to wake up. Because do you know what? He's alive, he has risen, and isn't that brilliant? Verse 11 of John 20. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked a woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise it was Jesus. He asked a woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Then verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Friends, what a season we've been through, eh? About to go through another one, by the way. Let's get realistic as a church. What's the church called to be? We're called to be a non-anxious presence amidst all the confusion and chaos and anxiety around us. Friends, it's hard. A pandemic, now a cost of living crisis. These times are hard, but I tell you something, when you've got Jesus on your side, it changes everything. When you stand on a rock of ages and you face the shifting sands of the culture around you, you've got a different perspective when you've got Jesus. And into this day, we acknowledge it's been a hard season, but we look to what's coming. I know so many people more interested in faith, we'll come back to this later, but more interested in faith now than they've ever been. Why? Because the pandemic made people think about the real questions of life. And I think right now we've got a moment as a church where we need to rise up, stand up, act up and be courageous. I really believe, um, ever since I've led the EA, the Evangelical Alliance, for the last three years, I've believed that what we need is a brave and kind church. A church that's brave enough to stand up in its culture and be different, but kind enough to treat everyone with the integrity and dignity they deserve. You know that kindness word's been nicked by the culture, hasn't it? It's been nicked to mean, don't ever question anything. It's quite the opposite to this sermon series. Don't ever question anything. Don't ever challenge anything. You know that quote Pastor Eddie was saying, God loves you just the way you are, but too much for you to stay the way you are. He wants you to be like Jesus. And kindness in our culture means don't challenge anything, don't correct anything, don't question anything. That's not kindness. If that was kindness, your children would have no hands. Because when they put their hands in the fire, you, mu you mustn't tell them not to do that. It's so unkind. It's nonsense. We've got to call that out. That is not kindness. Kindness is treating everyone as a divine image bearer, made in the image of God. Everyone as someone Jesus died for, and therefore someone who deserves integrity, dignity, and opportunity. 
That's kindness. But we need a brave and a kind church in this season. And the church needs to reposition itself away from itself and towards the lost. You know, um, I love the Iranian church. Fastest growing church in the world, Iran. Isn't that amazing? I always find that constantly amazing. It's the fastest growing church in the world. My wife does a load of stuff with the Iranian church, training Iranian pastors. Does it sometimes in Turkey. And she'll train them. And then what they'll also do is they'll hire a Turkish swimming pool in a hotel. And during the day, they'll do free lessons for local kids because Turkey's not Iran, but it's still not safe. Three lessons for local kids so no one catches on. Then from dusk till dawn, they've worked out they can baptise 350 Iranians a night and no one notices. Friends, the church is exploding all over the world. But the problem in the UK is we want Iranian results with UK comfort. Those two things don't go together. The time has come for a radical church out on a limb making a difference for Jesus. You know, ever since getting this job, I've known what it is to be a social leper. If you lead the Evangelical Alliance, it's not exactly a conversation starter. But I'll tell you something, the church is on the margins in the UK. It's nowhere near being persecuted. Let's not talk that nonsense. We're on the margins in the UK for the first time in a long time, and we're not going to remove from the margins. But major moves of God happen from the margins, not the mainstream. So let's get excited about what God's going to do. So in this passage, there's four things. There's four things Jesus does that I think we need to take on to change our way of reaching others and to be different in this season. And the first is this. He breaks all the rules. Jesus breaks all the rules. Some of you see that sign and you think, how sensible, of course I won't go on the grass. Some of you are made like me. You see that sign. And even if the ground is incredibly muddy, even if you've got brand new white trainers on, you are compelled to go on the grass simply because someone told you not to. You know, in the church, we're really good at making rules. We're not very good at breaking them. I went to Capernaum which is where Jesus spent a lot of his time living with Peter and Peter's mother-in-law. That makes me feel sorry for Jesus. To have to live with a mother-in-law without the benefits of marriage just seems like a double loss. (laughs) And we went to visit Capernaum, and it's 40 degrees on the day we're in Capernaum. And there's a big sign on the gate into Capernaum saying that unless your shorts or skirt are below your knee, you can't go in. So all my family go in, then it's me. Now I'm six foot three, right? I wear really flat shoes to make me look smaller. I'm six foot three. So where do you buy shorts that go below the knee? So my shorts are like an inch above my knee. I've gone all the way to Capernaum. My whole family are in. They tell me I can't go in. So I have to go back to the car park on my own. I'm fuming, to be honest. Now, before I worked for the Evangelical Alliance, I led an organization called Youth for Christ. So I'm down with the young people. On this occasion, that helped me out. There is something young blokes do that's disgusting. And they shouldn't do it. Where they wear their boxer shorts, right, above their trousers. So I went back to the car park, right, and I just pulled my shorts down about four inches. I went back to the same guy on the same door. He looks at me. He lets me in. I'm four steps into Capernaum. I pull my shorts back up, and I've never done it since. Friends, some of us are making rules that are stopping people getting to Jesus. Some of us are creating stuff that just doesn't need to be there, that's as futile as that Capernaum shorts rule. And we need to not make rules that stop people getting to Jesus. You know, in the passage, Jesus doesn't work within social constraints. This isn't my opinion, it's the opinion of the day. A woman was not worth the same as a man in that day. If I killed Pastor Eddie 
and only a woman had seen it, I would have got away with it. Because the testimony of a woman was not considered worthy in court. The average Pharisee got up each morning and thanked the Lord that they weren't born a Gentile, a slave or a woman. And yet your Jesus, my Jesus, appears to a woman, gives dignity and integrity to someone that the culture didn't. The first person to attest to the fact that he's risen is someone who if their testimony in court wouldn't count, the testimony of the resurrection started the church. Jesus breaks the rules by saying it's not okay that your culture says this and this and this about anyone. What's right is my view on things, which is that everyone matters, everyone plays, everyone participates, and everyone has value. And I just wonder for us, what rules do we need to break in order to see the gospel go further? Because there's a load of rules in the way that just don't need to be there. Some things are important, but our culture creates rules that stop us doing things. We need to relentlessly go after those outside of the church. And not just those that look and sound and smell like us as well. But break the rules, break the rules, break the rules, because Jesus sets that model. But then secondly, what else might need to change? Jesus is full of surprises. He's full of surprises. I find this amazing, because in the church, sometimes we're a bit predictable, aren't we? And people see us as a bit predictable. And... Whenever, whenever there's a Christian character in a soap opera or, or a TV show, they, they portray us a certain way, don't they? Bit dull, bit predictable, bit safe. Yet the Jesus we follow is absolutely full of surprises. Four surprises in this passage. First one, earlier in John 20, when Jesus is resurrected from the dead, what's the very first thing he does? He starts folding up dirty washing. Mary and Joseph clearly raised him really well. He's resurrected from the dead. He's buried in two sheets. He starts folding up a sheet. At some point he remembers, hang on, I'm the uh, saviour of the universe. I've got slightly more important things to be doing. And he leaves one sheet unfolded, one folded, and he cracks on out of the tomb. What a moment. What a surprise. Second surprise. The incarnation. The fact that God became a person for you and me is mind-blowing, isn't it? The fact that God became a person, the fact that he would be that humble, the God who threw the stars into space, became a person for you and me. That's unbelievable surprise. Third surprise, he's resurrected. He was dead, he's alive, he's resurrected. Now friends, let me say one thing. Please don't get bored of the resurrection because you've heard the message so many times. Over-familiarity in Christianity is a real problem. Even in Nazareth, who's that? Ah, it's just Mary and Joseph's son, no, no one exciting. You know, over-familiarity is a problem. I pray every morning, I did it this morning, Lord, make me dangerous for you. Remind me what I'm saved from. Make me radical for you. Make me infectious for you. If I stop at a service station on the way to Dartford, Lord, let there be an overflow in me that somehow speaks to others. Because we get used to it. But the resurrection is amazing. He was dead, he's alive. You know, the, the incarnations are surprised, but then this baby becomes a man who gives food to the hungry, health to the sick, life to the dead. They throw him into a tomb, and, and you know in a garden tomb, has anyone been to the garden tomb? Anyone been there? Yeah. When you go there, they've dug out a bit by the feet to fit Jesus' body in. Have you seen that? Because Joseph of Arimathea was little, Jesus was tall. Jesus might not have been allowed into Capernaum. Anyway, different issue. But now that I'm middle-aged, I don't understand why they dug out a bit by the feet. Any home improvements should be a sensible fiscal decision for the long term. Not for three nights when it's a dead body in the fetal position. What's the problem? 
But three days later, the grave is empty because your Jesus, my Jesus, defeated death that we might know life. Friends, this is so surprising. And it says on the front of the garden tomb, he is not here for he has risen. And yet I meet so many Christians who are like, yeah, well, Jesus died for me once. Now come on, friends, sort yourself out. He's resurrected, it's unbelievable. Fourth surprise though, he walks through a wall. How else does he get to the disciples? You know, this is too out there for Star Wars or Marvel even. You know, Jesus walks through a wall. There's no door open, there's no window broken, there's no wall smashed. He walks through it to get to them. Surprise! And it's time we started surprising people with our mercy, with our love, with our compassion. We did a survey of 4,500 adults in the UK. What do you think about Christians? If they don't know a Christian, they think we're horrible, hateful, homophobic and judgmental. If they know a Christian, they think we're loving, kind, compassionate, and generous. Friends, all we've got to do to surprise people is actually make friends. As the church as well, four years ago, online church felt as relatable as flying to the moon. But now it feels mundanely normal. So we can surprise people with our style as well as our substance. We can surprise people and surprise them and surprise them again. It's time that the church went out on a limb being different because people think that they've decided what we are. We're yesterday's news, we're dull and we're off to the side when actually we are today's news and tomorrow's news, bringing hope to the hopeless. And the Bible is full of surprise after surprise after surprise. So he breaks the rules, he's full of surprises. But thirdly, He's incredibly compassionate. He's incredibly compassionate. It's that moment in this passage. And I have to be honest, at first I think, sort yourself out, Mary. I'm supposed to hear from God when I can't see him. He's just stood there and you can't make out who he is. What's going on, Mary? Then you dig a bit. We know that Jesus was facing this, sorry, that Mary was facing this way and Jesus was behind her. We also know she's been crying for three days. When you're properly crying, your eyes go almost a bit fuzzy, don't they? Her eyes have gone weary and fuzzy. Then we know she would have had long hair because of the day she was born into. And this was a day before L'Oreal, because you're worth it, was even invented. So her hair on a good day would have been worse than yours on its worst day. But this hair after three days of grieving would have been a really bad day. So she's got fuzzy eyes and hair stuck all over her face. She looks over her shoulder and she makes out a male figure. It's kind of understandable she doesn't know who it is. Tilly calls her Mary. He almost certainly doesn't call her Mary. Because he wouldn't have called her Mary and then she answered Rabboni. You know Rabboni, which is in Aramaic. He must have called her Miriam. Now Miriam is Aramaic for Mary. The reason he must have called her Miriam is why else would she have replied in Aramaic if he'd spoken in Hebrew? But here's the thing that really matters. They're in Jerusalem where the language of the educated is Hebrew. No one spoke Aramaic in Jerusalem. Aramaic was an uneducated language from the Galilean region that you wouldn't have spoken in Jerusalem because it made you look uneducated and unimportant. But your Jesus, my Jesus, has such compassion and such security in who he is that he calls her in a way that only he would do when he calls her Miriam in Aramaic because he's okay with who he is. So he shows such compassion to her in her moment in grief that he calls her out in a way that only she would understand. What compassion? And we need to ask the Lord for that compassion for those around us. 
We need to ask the Lord for that individualized compassion for those in our communities that don't know him. You know, um, it's been said a lot, hasn't it? We've been in the same storm, but not the same boat. That's going to get even more true in a cost of living crisis. Some of my friends came out of the pandemic with savings accounts they didn't need before. Others already were choosing between heating and eating. Friends, it's not the same for everyone. So we need to ask the Lord for compassion individually for people like he shows to Mary. The other great example of that for me in scripture is when he goes to see Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus has died. That's an amazing moment because if ever there was a time to McDonaldize your compassion and treat two people the same, it's two sisters with the same DNA who've lost their brother. Surely they can just be treated the same. We don't need extra compassion. Not the truth. They're individuals. One of them's overwhelmed in their mind. The other's overwhelmed in their heart. One's full of questions, the practical person. The other's just full of emotions. What I love about Jesus, with Martha, he answers her questions. But with Mary, he just weeps with her. Don't you love it? He shows such compassion to them as individuals. We need to ask for that. And he shows that much compassion when he's still got that much power. You know, about 10 verses later, he goes to the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out. And boom, out he comes. And I've been in that tomb. Bethany's in Palestine. I've stood in that tomb. The reason he says, Lazarus, come out, is there's 15 beds for dead people. If he just said, come out, it would have been a Scooby-Doo moment as all 15 walked out at the same time. Can you imagine if Lazarus had been a common name? Imagine if there's three Lazaruses in there. Not you, sunshine, go back to sleep. Not you, it's that one I want. The compassion. We need to find this compassion for those who don't know Jesus. And you know, part of that compassion as well means that when people who don't know Jesus but have done loads of things wrong come to Jesus and then go and seemingly do more for the kingdom than you, we celebrate, we don't get jealous. Because if you look at scripture, you almost have to have really messed up or be unusable for God to do great things for you. Have you ever thought about that? You know, look at Noah. Plants his own vineyard and gets mashed up on his own wine. Abraham was far too old to be used. Jacob was a liar. Rahab was a prostitute. David had an affair and was a murderer. Jonah ran from God. The disciples fell asleep whilst praying. The Samaritan woman was divorced more than once and the aforementioned Lazarus was dead. And the Lord used them all powerfully. So compassion for the lost and then compassion to see them do great things. But this compassion mustn't stop with those who don't know Jesus. We need to do better at it within the family too. I, uh, I've been married for 21 years this year. I got married when I was four. Um, and I remember... I remember in my wedding prep, them saying time and again, never go to bed on an argument. Say sorry even when it's not your fault. Now, I am really experienced in this. Because I am forever saying sorry, and it's rarely my fault. <laughs> Friends, one of the bad sides of the job I do is I know most of the mess of the church in the UK. And most of the mess doesn't start big. It starts tiny and doesn't get dealt with. And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It's a bit like, um, have you ever seen those little tigers when they're being hand-filled with a milk bottle and it looks all cute and it's a moving, cuddly tiger? I'd love one of them, wouldn't you? Love a little tiger. Don't want it for very long, though. Because if you don't deal with that tiger, it grows into a massive one that mauls you. Most of the stuff that's splitting churches or causing problems within the Christian family is small. It doesn't get dealt with. It just grows. The enemy's way of getting a foothold is to attack your unity. 
And I have just had enough of it, to be honest. I've just had enough. Satan, just go away. You've already been destroyed and defeated by the one who is Jesus. Get under his feet, know your place, and stop getting in the way of the church. But what we need to start doing as the church is never going to bed on an argument. Because too often something little happens and it grows. So I really believe for some people here today, they may not be in the building, but there's someone you need to say sorry to before you go to sleep again. Because that's important and it matters. And we need to show compassion to one another. Because compassion's for those outside the church. It's also for those within the church. But when you do it, do it kindly. I remember when I was at Bible college, it's like 25 years ago, and there was one chapel service in which they said, if there's anyone here you don't like, if there's anyone here that um, you don't even understand how Jesus could love them, if there's anyone here and you look at them and you think, how could they even be a Christian? If there's anyone here and you look at them and you just think, I don't think they're worth anything. They're not going to do anything with their life. In fact, frankly, I think they're awful. If there's anyone here like that, don't go to lunch without saying sorry because we can't have that disunity in the college. It was fine. It came to lunchtime. Everyone went off to lunch. No one saw anyone apart from me. I had a queue of people. And this queue of people wanting to say how they thought I was awful or incapable of doing stuff or wasn't going to do anything or told too many jokes or too superficial. And, you know, each one of them left feeling better. I felt cumulative worse all the time. By the end of it, I felt like an imp of Satan or something. But, you know, so do it kindly. But we can't afford to have a fighting family. Don't go to bed on an argument. So he breaks the rules. He's full of surprises. He's compassionate. And finally, he's faithful. He's faithful. John eleven sixteen. Thomas says, let us go that we might die with you. That's ironic, isn't it? He then goes wandering off. And it, it's an amazing moment. But here's the thing. Go easy on the disciples. Just go easy on them. According to the late John Stott, they were aged 15 to 22. When Jesus wanted to change the world, he started a youth group. He had to have done as well, because for him to be 30 and him to be the rabbi, there had to be at least a generation between them. But can you imagine if your teenage years were recorded in the most read book in human history? You wouldn't like that, would you? So go easy on the disciples. But what's amazing here is Thomas goes wandering and misses out on Jesus visiting the disciples. But Jesus is so faithful, he comes back for him. Even in Thomas's unfaithfulness, Jesus comes back for him. Don't you love that? Or in Gethsemane, Jesus asks three times to not go to the cross. If you ever think you're struggling with unanswered prayer, it's not unanswered. You just not get any answer you want. And Jesus asks three times, please, can I not go to the cross? And he's sweating blood as he's begging the Father to not have to go to the cross. And he has to go and he's faithful and he keeps going. I don't know about you, but I'd rather be faithful and it be painful than unfaithful and it feel okay. It's like fast food. That's like eating fast food all the time. What's going to make me feel okay in the short term, not what's the right thing to do in the long term? And the Lord is faithful. And it's amazing how easily we give up. In our culture, it's such an unfaithful culture. I was at one of my friend's houses the other day and hadn't realised till I got there, his marriage is over. And I went in and I was expecting him to tell me some terrible story of something awful he'd done. He said, in the end, we just wanted different things. Wasn't sure I really loved her anymore, so it's done. I said, mate, love is not a feeling, it's a choice. And I said, we live in a culture that says, the minute you're not happy, run away. Do you know what that leads to? Brokenness, a mental health epidemic, all the other problems we're facing in our culture. Because in the end, we're called to be faithful. 
And I just think as a church, the most countercultural thing we can do in an unfaithful culture is be faithful to the one who's faithful to us. Is shut the back door of the church. Is never, never losing anyone from his number. Is, is stick at Jesus the rest of our days. Because the only thing anyone sticks at all their life is their football team. I don't know if you've noticed that. And unless they support AFC Wimbledon, they got that wrong. Because Jesus supports Wimbledon. He cares about the marginalised. Those who've been mistreated. And there's a special place in his heart for anyone who's been forced to live in exile. But wouldn't it be amazing if the church was faithful to Jesus the rest of our days? Uncompromising, unswavering, keeping going, keeping going, keeping going. When I was here last, I talked about um, surviving in hard times, but I also talked about it being the greatest moment for the gospel, potentially. I just want to go slightly further on that, because since being with you last time, I think it's become clearer and clearer that we are living in the greatest moment for the gospel in any of our lifetimes. Before the pandemic, if you were worried about getting too old, you got a new moisturiser. During the pandemic, people looked death in the face. Every night on the news, excess deaths, people were worried about dying. The people around you started asking the questions you've been answering for 30 years when they weren't asking. We're living in a changing climate. Things are happening. I got asked, um, after being with you last time, I got asked to write the forward to a book on evangelical church history, 1900 to 1950. That's a real privilege to be asked, but it was a big academic book and it was hard work. And as I read it, I had Google Thesaurus alongside me to help me with the long words. But there was one bit in it that stuck with me. At the end of the Second World War, church attendance in the UK was off the charts for 18 months. Hugely up. After 18 months, it went back down below pre-Second World War levels. The diagnosis in the book was this. The church spent 18 months getting itself okay, happy and comfortable again. And by the time the church had sorted itself out, the lost had gone elsewhere. Friends, let's not allow that to happen in our day. Let's not allow church history to write of us that we got ourselves okay and happy again. And then by the time that we were sorted, those asking questions had gone away again. Friends, I know it's been hard. I have never felt so fragile in all my life as I feel at the moment. Fragility is relative, I understand that. But I've never felt so fragile, but I've never felt so hopeful. And And it's been hard, we own our pain, but I don't trust anyone that doesn't walk with a limp. If you don't walk with a limp, you're either delusional or you live in Disneyland. We've all got pain. But can you imagine having lived through a pandemic without Jesus? Can you imagine going through a cost of living crisis without Jesus? Those of us that have Jesus need to posture ourselves towards the lost because the lost have got no hope in the midst of this hopeless time. And we need to stand up and speak up and say, hope is a name, his name is Jesus. And it doesn't mean that we're immune from the pain, but it means we have a context because we know Jesus wins. And so we hold on in the storm, knowing where we're headed and hoping to bring more along with us in the middle. I mentioned earlier about that research we did. We did it in 2015 about how open people are to the gospel. In 2015, we found out that one in five non-Christians want to hear more about your faith. Isn't that amazing? One in five. Archbishop Justin Welby got overexcited and ordered loads of leather shoelaces for all of his um, vicars. And he sent them one. He said, put five knots in your shoelace. Pray every day over the five. One of the five wants to know more about Jesus. You only have to have five friends. For one to want to know more about your faith. That was amazing. But friends, you can throw those shoelaces in the bin. Because it's now one in three. 
Same question asked in 2022 and 2015. One in three people want to know more about your faith. The ground has never been so fertile. People are open. People are desperate. I was at um, a funeral and this guy comes up to me. He's really athletic, really muscly, in incredible shape. As he came towards me, it's like looking in a mirror. (laughs) And he came up to me and he says, "Um, I was watching something you did on YouTube and it was really rubbish and... At the end of it, I gave my life to Jesus. I said, what do you mean? It was, he said, well, the talk wasn't very good, but there's just something. Jesus is real, isn't he? I'm like, you're right, he's real. I was preaching two weeks ago at this thing for Teen Challenge. They're taking lots of people who are struggling with drugs and other stuff. The amount of blokes that gave their life to Jesus, I've never seen anything like it. Right now, it's easier than normal. Because people are looking for something greater than what they've been taught to depend on. My view is this, witnessing is a muscle. Most of us are flabby. Let's build muscles while the landscape's easier. And then when it gets hard again, we may not even notice. Because when it comes to witnessing, it's a habit. And what frustrates me is some people say, yeah, but I'm not one of those evangelistic types. We use the word witness. Every Christian is a witness or an imposter. That's what Spurgeon said. So if you have a pulse and you love Jesus, you're a witness. And for too long, it's been like, people have said, yeah, but I'm more of a shepherd, I'm more pastoral. I can't say, because I've got a natural leaning towards talking about Jesus, I therefore won't care about anyone. I'm expected to be pastoral, because you've got to try and do all of the things. I think all of us as Christians need to start saying, do you know what, Lord, here I am, use me. Let me be part of your witnessing family. And it's not just about decisions. This new season is about disciples. We are not just looking for hands in the air. We're looking for people who follow Jesus the rest of their days. And I can't find a definition of a disciple that doesn't involve witnessing. So I believe now is the day for a bunch of us to say, all right, Lord, I'll break the rules and I will talk to people about you. All right, Lord, I'll be full of surprises. When people meet me, they'll see something different to what they expect. All right, Lord, give me compassion. Give me compassion for those outside the church, but also those within it. And Lord, I'll be faithful to you as you've been faithful to me. Would you come and would you use me? When I was at school, every single subject apart from PE on the report said, could do better. (laughs) Not even should, just could. You know, he could, he could do better. And I think for some of us, when it comes to our witnessing, it's a case of we could do better. Because you could say, oh, I'm going to be Billy Graham. Let's, Let's get realistic, friends. Style is not what matters here. It's just, are you prepared to be a signpost to Jesus, to those who don't know him? And could you do better? So I wonder, we haven't got a lot of time, but I wonder if you're watching at home or you're in the room and you want to say to the Lord, Lord, I could do better in my witnessing. And in this season where it's easier, I want to do better. And I want to grow habits that will serve me a lifetime. It's not about what you haven't done. It's about what you're going to do. I wonder if you're you're up for this and you're at home or you're in the room and you think, Lord, I just want to do better in sharing you with others, whether that's through words, works or wonders, I need you to equip me. If that's you, just where you are, would you just stand with me? We're just going to pray a prayer of two halves. I'm going to pray the first bit, then Pastor Eddie's going to come and pray, because I'm not here next week. Well, I'm not planning to be. In the Lord's uh, economy, you never know. Not planning to be. But I think there's power in a moment like this where, you know, 
That youth group I talked about, that youth group of 12, within which one denied him, one doubted him, one betrayed him, that small youth group changed the world. What could this many of us do? Having each other's backs, cheering each other on. Let me encourage you one other thing after we've prayed. After the service, if you stood, maybe find someone else who stood and just pray with them and say, do you know what? I've got your back. I'm with you. Let's check in next week. Let's see how we're doing. Because friends, this is a team effort. So Lord, we just say, we long to see more people meet you. And we come before you and we say, Lord, would you give us a spirit of boldness? Would you give us, Lord, a heart for those who don't know you? Lord, would you make us greater witnesses? Lord, forgive us for where we haven't opened our mouths or shared our lives or or shared your hope with others. But Lord, this is a new season. And I pray that as it's easier to share, Lord, I do pray we would be fruitful. I pray you'd blow us away with how fruitful we are. And I pray that off the back of that fruitfulness, there would be a greater sense of boldness in us. Lord, I pray that we would not be afraid of of the fact that in our culture we're kind of told to keep it to ourselves, but we would break that rule, open our mouths for you. I pray, Lord, that we would speak of the hope we have in you. I pray for tomorrow, Lord, at work when it's so easy to talk about what we did on Saturday. Why don't we talk about what we did on Sunday? I pray, Lord, you'd help us to surprise people. Lord, I thank you that when people know us, they're amazed at who we are. Help us to make friends more generously with those who don't know you. Make us compassionate, Lord. For one another too, I pray that this church would never go to bed on an argument. I pray that today the evil one would stop having a foothold in some of our relationships as we say sorry, but give us compassion for the lost. And I pray we'd be faithful, Lord, the rest of our days. And in this moment when it feels like there's an openness, do something remarkable, Lord. And would all the glory be yours, because it could only ever be you. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us at www.gatewaychapel.org.uk. Remember to subscribe so you'll never miss another message like this one. Be blessed.